Good morning. I've been a little under the weather the last few days, so if I sound a little bit more raspy this morning, the sermon is brought to you by Hall's Cough Drops this morning, <laughs> if we needed a sponsorship. <clears throat> a couple of announcements before we get started. Solomon's Porchman, we are meeting today at 4 o'clock. And a second announcement, especially for those that are PBC members, next Sunday, uh, during the Sunday School Hour, one of our, uh, our candidate for our open pastoral assistant position is coming to teach our Sunday School Hour. So if you're a member, that would be a great thing for you to be here so you could hear that. If you're a regular attender, it would be a great thing for you to be here uh, to hear that during the 9 o'clock hour. So we'll be all combined next week for that 9 o'clock hour. This morning we start our study in Galatians kind of trying to seamlessly move from Acts 15 to Galatians 1, because that's about when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. And in chapter 15 of Acts at the Jerusalem Council, what was at stake was the gospel. And as we move into our study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, what is at stake is the gospel. And as we move into the 21st century, in what many call a post-Christian or a post-truth culture, What is still at stake is the gospel. That's been at stake from the beginning. And so I think it would be a good thing to do to come back to this question. What is the gospel? It's a natural question, and it's a question that if you've ever asked people this, believer and non-believer alike, you'll get very different answers on what the gospel is. If you've read Greg Gilbert's little book, What is the Gospel?, which is a great little little tool to to share the gospel with people. He has a section in his opening chapter uh, where he surveyed a group of people about this very question, and the answers are all over the map. And these are professing believers who define the gospel in so many different ways. So shouldn't we know the gospel better than anything? Shouldn't we be uniform and, 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 and confident in our definition of the gospel? How are we to make disciples if we do not have the gospel of salvation at the ready? That we can, we can bring that out and give it to people, deliver that truth to a lost and dying world at any time. <clears throat> so to help me define it, I borrow from D.A. Carson. He says the gospel is good news. We'll talk about that in Paul's text this morning. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The Bible depicts human beings, all human beings everywhere, as in revolt against God, and therefore under his judgment. But although God stands over against us in judgment because of our sin, quite amazingly he stands over against us in love, because he is that kind of God. And the gospel is the good news of what God in love has done in Jesus Christ, especially in Jesus' cross and resurrection, to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to himself. Christ bore our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty, turned aside God's judgment, God's wrath from us, and he canceled sin. The brokenness of our lives he restores. The shattered relationships he rebuilds in the context of the church. The new life that we human beings find in Christ is granted out of the sheer grace of God and is received by faith as we repent of our sins and turn to Jesus. We confess him as Lord and bow to him joyfully. The gospel is good news, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. So in today's text, Paul is concerned about that good news, that gospel. For if it's altered, if it becomes centered on man, it ceases to be the gospel. Not on Paul's watch, 
and by God's grace, not on our watch either. Let's read our text, Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you this morning as a God of grace, as the God of our salvation, as the almighty God of creation. Lord, bless our time this morning. Bless the preaching of your word. Help it to be clear. Help it to be truth that only you can give us through your perfect word. And we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. The outline today is about as simple as you can get. (laughs) Two whole points. We're going to talk about this introduction fairly briefly. The good news is, is I've basically given you a historical introduction to this letter by going through the book of Acts. That is the introduction to this letter, and we'll reference back a few times as we go through. But we'll talk about how Paul introduces this letter, and then he gets right down to business in verse 6 and talks about the importance of the gospel. First two verses. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Now in our letters, if we ever write letters anymore, maybe I should say in our emails, we employ certain niceties beginning with introductory statements. Dear sir, we end with certain things. Yours truly, sincerely. That's our formula. Well, this is the ancient world formula. This is the first century formula for a salutation. It always includes three parts. The name of the sender comes first, then the name of the recipient, and then some sort of greeting formula to follow. And Paul follows that format in all of his epistles, but his opening message is tailored to the church that he's writing to. (coughs) And they're always packed full of theology. There's always a reference to Christ and the gospel. Notice first that Paul identifies himself definitively as an apostle, And, and not in the generic sense, not as in I'm one who has been sent, but specifically not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What's Paul saying? That he did not take that title upon himself. It was not given to him by another man. He was called by an, as an apostle by Christ himself. And the vindication of that truth is going to be a major theme in this letter. So in the very first sentence of the letter, what is Paul doing but countering the allegations that are coming from his opponents in Galatia, that he's not an official apostle? By the way, while we're not apostles, a similar reality describes our spiritual state, does it not? The Lord Jesus Christ, co-equal in majesty in essence with God the Father, freely came to earth to accomplish the Father's plan of redemption. He came into the very thick of our humanity. He took on flesh. He took the form of a slave. 
And God vindicated his shameful death on the cross by raising him from the dead, exalting him to his right hand. He's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He's worthy to be worshipped and glorified by all who are his. That's the one who's called you to salvation. No man or agency could accomplish that event. No man can make dead men alive. And Paul is no lone ranger here. He includes the brethren who are with me. Who are these brethren? Probably the elders at Antioch. That's his sending church. And he doesn't call them fellows. He calls them brothers. Another theme that will become clear in this letter, that believers are bonded at a family level through our faith in Jesus Christ. That faith transcends all barriers, be they ethnic or familial or or socioeconomic. We know the recipients well from our recent study in Acts. (coughs) the churches in Galatia. And if we want to get specific, we're in that region right there. And you can kind of see, maybe you can't see on the map, but there is Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Those are our four main cities. Remember, Paul went through those four cities in Acts 13 and 14, retraced his steps back through those cities before coming back to Antioch. Paul and Barnabas spent about 18 months on that first missionary journey. After returning and reporting to the church at Syrian Antioch and having spent a long time with the disciples there, that's Acts 14, 28, Paul writes this epistle to the churches that he has just planted, who he has just invested in with the gospel in that region of Galatia. This letter comes after Peter's transgression at Antioch. We'll talk more about that in Galatians chapter 2, but before the Jerusalem council that we just covered in Acts 15. Remember, it's that same Peter that made this error in Antioch that becomes the positive witness for the gospel to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. The epistle will show us the opposition faced in the early church. It's going to spell out Paul's passionate defense of the gospel in the face of the Pharisaic legalism that we saw emerge from Jerusalem, which leads to the correct apostolic decrees pronounced by James and the council for Gentiles to be included in the faith. For those keeping track on the timeline, Paul writes this letter by my lights in about the fall of A.D. 49. So 16 years after the crucifixion, about 15 years after Paul's conversion, and about three years after Paul originally came to Antioch at the request of Barnabas. At this point in the New Testament canon, I would argue that only Matthew and James have been written so far. So then I think Galatians is the third New Testament book written and the first Pauline epistle. All right. Paul gives us an extended greeting starting in verse 3. He shows the passion and the burden of his heart that prompted him to write it. Again, what is at stake is the content of the gospel that Paul had preached to the Galatians. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. This epistle will be a proverbial line in the sand against those who would oppose Paul's apostleship and, more importantly, the biblical gospel. But notice, Galatians begins with grace and amen. Grace and amen. If you go to the end of the epistle, in chapter 6, verse 18, it ends with two words. Guess what they are? Grace and amen. Those things are the bookends of this letter He begins with prayer and a doxology, a statement that gives glory to God, and he concludes the letter in the same way. He offers grace and peace, a combination of gifts whose only source is God. You want to know what grace is? you got to go to God for that. You want real peace in this world? Only God can offer it. 
And it finds their origin in the Old Testament, specifically the Aaronic priestly blessing in Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. It's a common combination in Paul's letters, but it's especially pertinent here. John Chrysostom in the 4th century said, For since they were in danger of falling from grace, he prays that they may recover it again. And since they had become at war with God, he beseeches God to restore to them the same peace. In verse 1, Paul trumpeted the resurrection. In verse 4, he focuses on the suffering and the death of Christ on the cross. This also possesses Old Testament roots, particularly the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who bore our iniquities and carried our sorrows, being smitten and crushed by God's righteous judgment. Paul makes it clear here that it was entirely voluntary, that that sacrifice was of Christ's own volition. He gave himself. Years later, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul will further illustrate Christ's sacrifice when he writes, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The cost of our sin was death, and it fell upon the perfect Son of God. Why? Paul tells us here, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. Christ has rescued us from this present evil age through justifying us by faith and pouring out his spirit in our lives. It's an accomplished fact. It is finished. And it was accomplished, Paul says, according to the will of God. One commentator said the action of the Son was the very proof of the Father's love. And God alone gets the glory. Amen. To contemplate who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ is to fall on our knees in worship in thanksgiving, in praise, as John Calvin put it so well, so glorious is this redemption that it should ravish us with wonder. But while Christ has rescued us from this present evil age, he has not taken us out of it. And so our newfound freedom in Christ must lead to holiness. It cannot be abused as a license for sin. God forbid, Paul will say later in this letter, which brings us to the meat of the letter. And spoiler alert, there's no false encouragement No participation trophies for the church in Galatia. Paul is here to conduct serious business. But before we get to the text, I want you to understand that Paul's letter to Galatians is a not-so-subtle warning for the church of all times. None of God's elect will utterly or finally fall away. And the gates of hell certainly will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But there's no such thing as eternal security for a local church that has lost its first love. Think Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Here's the compelling thing in my mind. We're reading only one side of this conversation. We don't get to see how the Galatians reacted to this letter. We're not really sure. Surely it was not the case that every false teacher stopped promoting false doctrine. Surely not every offender in the church repented. I'm sure many did. But for us, the application I'm more concerned about today, Paul's admonitions are just as applicable today as they were almost 2,000 years ago. Will we heed the warning and make corrections when necessary to preserve the character and the testimony of the church? That's the attitude with which we must approach this epistle. Teach us, Paul. Show us our blind spots. Help us keep the focus on the cross and the glory of the gospel. Now, if you read most of Paul's letters, you'll notice that he is usually very positive at the beginning of letters. He is very thankful for people. I'll show you some examples. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. I've got to 
figure out where I am here. I'm all disoriented, okay? I w- wanted to look that way soon. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you. Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease giving thanks for you. Philippians 1.3, I thank my God in all my remembrance to you. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. First and Second Thessalonians have similar greetings. Not so with the Galatian churches. He jumps right in in verse 6 with, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It escalated a little quickly there, didn't it? Later, he'll call them foolish Galatians. It always boggles my mind when I drive down the road and I see a church called Galatia Baptist Church. And I'm like, "Ah." (laughs) and I just think, oh, you foolish Galatians. Uh, But he says, I'm, 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 I'm shocked. I'm amazed that this is going on. I was just with you months earlier, and this is already happening. Instead of being able to give thanks for the Galatians' advance in the gospel, Paul expresses astonishment at their abandonment of it. They call it kind of the shock and awe. He says, I am amazed. The matzo is the Greek word. It's often translated as marveled or astonished. The crowds react this way to Jesus' miracles. This is a gape. This is uh, astonishment. Jesus himself marvels at the faith of the centurion in Matthew 8.10. The people of Jerusalem have the same reaction when the apostles are speaking in tongues at Pentecost. John marvels, same word, at the sight of Babylon the Great in Revelation 17. So this is not just, oh, it's kind of surprising. No, this is, this is shock and astonishment. Why is he shocked? That you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. In the same way, Paul's genuinely shocked at recent developments, especially the fact that it's happened so quickly. Paul's only been gone for a short time, and the last we heard, the churches were on sound footing. Acts 15.23 says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They were on good standing, and in just several months, this has fallen apart. Many new believers were won to Christ. Churches were planted, elders appointed, miracles displayed. Now, in the aftermath of this great awakening, we might call it, the Galatian Christians for whom Paul had harbored such great hope were at the very point of abandoning the gospel. Doubtless, this accounts for the tone of dismay and astonishment that we hear throughout the letter. That word deserting, metatithemi, it literally means to move to another place. Hebrews 11.5 uses it to describe Enoch being taken up uh, to heaven. It's used in a variety of ways in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, but it came to be associated with political traitors or military deserters. He's one who switched sides in the middle of a conflict. That's, that's how he's identifying this. These are powerful admonishments for the church. It's more than a simple change of opinion. This is an intensely personal thing that Paul's talking about. He's calling them spiritual traitors. First century Benedict Arnold's, if you will. But notice he doesn't say, you have deserted. He says, you are deserting. He uses the present middle indicative, and you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it means it's sometimes called the continuous present. You are deserting. What does that mean? It means the process isn't complete. It means there's still hope. Turn back and hold fast to the gospel that was preached to you at the beginning. The situation's desperate, but it's not without hope. And Paul makes clear here that they're not deserting him. They're deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. Paul knows that's not him. Who's the one who calls us to salvation? It's God himself. The God who called the world into existence with a word. 
the God who raised Jesus from the dead, the God who wrought the miracle of conversion in the Galatians in the first place. To turn from the gospel of grace is to turn from the God of grace. And there's a hint here concerning that different gospel. They are deserting God and his grace. I think that's intentional on Paul's part. It's an indication that the false gospel being preached was without grace. Specifically, that God's grace alone is not sufficient for salvation. We will see that played out in the letter. The Judaizers that Paul and Barnabas fought in the region had found a foothold, and people were being led out of grace and into legalism. Paul reminds the Galatians, and us as well, that nothing in salvation is due to human effort. Nothing in your salvation is due to your merit or your works. Everything in salvation is due to the grace of God. Here at the beginning of the letter, he wanted them to realize that the God who called them out of pagan idolatry to salvation and new life in Christ did so on no other basis than his good pleasure and his gracious loving kindness. To forget that is worse than betraying an army or a country. It is to betray the true and living God. And what are they betraying him for? A different gospel. (coughs) A different gospel, which is really not another Paul loves to talk about the true gospel. He uses the term more than any other New Testament author, 60 times to be exact in his letters. The euangelion, the good news. That's a term possibly borrowed from the prophet Isaiah. You'll remember in Isaiah 52, 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of he who brings good news. That will be quoted again by Paul in Romans chapter 10. But he gives a full description of the gospel. If you want to dig into this a little bit more, read some of Paul's other writings. Go to Romans 1, 1 through 4. Thank you. (laughs) And 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Appreciate it, man. (laughs) Uh, Living water, right? Find my spot again. Here we go. Um, In summary, if you read Romans 1, 1 through 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, In summary, if we sum those verses up, deliverance through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what are the benefits of that? Forgiveness of sin, a right standing with God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, all appropriated by grace through faith. Now, I want you to see the words that Paul uses here because this is important for us to understand. A distinction concerning the gospel being preached by the false teachers, not the real gospel, the false gospel. Paul says it is heteron, not alo. Now, You don't know Greek, so you might not know what that, but this is really interesting, I think, so bear with me for a second. First of all, heteros, the Greek word heteros, means one not of the same nature, form, or class. It means different. We understand the idea of heterosexual, right? That's that That in our marriages, we are heterosexual because we are a man and a woman, because even the world at one point knew that men and women were different. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the heteros, the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the heteros. You cannot serve God and wealth. What's the point of that? That these two things are very different. They are two entirely different entities. You cannot serve both, okay? Entirely different, not related at all, okay? Alos, the second word, another, is also translated in English, other or another, but it carries a different understanding. For example, Matthew 5, 39. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the alos to him also, the other to him also. 
It's used three times in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. Some seeds fall beside the road, and the birds came and ate them. Others fell in rocky places. Others fell among the thorns, and others fell on the good soil. Here's the point. A cheek is the same whether it's on the right side of your face or the left side of your face. That's a cheek, that's a cheek. They're, there's a difference. They're on a different location, but they're the same thing. The seeds are all the same. They just happen to be in different places. And so do you see the difference between heteros and alos? Paul is not saying that he and the false teachers both preach Christ, but they differ in interpretation. We, we have some alos differences between other Bible believers. We might differ on how we define baptism or sacraments or things like that. But when we talk about the gospel, if there is a different gospel, that's a problem. Paul says these men are preaching a heteron euangelion, a different gospel. And if the gospel is falsified, there's no salvation. It's only condemnation. You'll, you'll have conversations with uh, Mormon people, and they'll say, no, we believe in Jesus. And you go, well, wait a second, let's define who this Jesus is. And it, it turns out it's an entirely different Jesus. Wrong Jesus, no salvation. Different gospel, no salvation. If you were talking to somebody and you said, my pastor's name is Pastor Dave, and they said, hey, I know Pastor Dave. And you're like, really? He's like, yeah, what is he, about 5'8", he's got long hair, right? You go, I don't think we're talking about the same Pastor Dave. No, 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 my, I know Pastor Dave. Well, I don't think you do because the one you're describing is not the one that I know. That's what we run into with the gospel. They'll say, no, we believe the gospel. We believe in Jesus, but let's, de- let's define our terms. You can't change the gospel. You can't change who Jesus is. That's a problem, and Paul's addressing it. In Galatia, they're preaching a gospel of works, a gospel that includes Jesus, sure, but a gospel that cannot lead to salvation without the believer sealing the deal. Simply put, on, on the cross, Christ should have said, it's almost finished. Perhaps it's finished by circumcision or perfectly keeping the law, but however it's defined, it adds to the work of Christ, and it produces a different gospel. And that's why Paul is so strong in this letter. He says, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Here's what false teachers do. They disturb and they distort. He says some, no names, but it's plural. We have a team of false teachers going on here. And they're doing two things. They are disturbing the church and they are distorting the gospel. Disturbing means to agitate or trouble sometimes even terrify. It literally means to stir the waters. It's the same word John uses in John 5 when it talks about the angel stirring the waters at the pool of Bethesda. But Jesus said that we're not to be troubled. Same word in this life, John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Distort means to change to the opposite, to twist or to pervert. In the fourth century, Jerome defined this word as setting behind what is in front and putting in front what is behind. The prophet Isaiah might say, those who call evil good and good evil. It's used only two other times in the New Testament to describe laughter being turned into mourning and joy being turned to gloom in James 4.9 and the sun being turned to darkness in Peter's quotation of Joel 2 at Pentecost. What's clear here is they are preaching a different gospel. They're promoting light, but it's darkness. They're promoting joy, but it's gloom. This is a complete perversion of the truth. John Stott said, these two, disturbing and distorting, go together. To tamper with the gospel is always to trouble the church. You cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. 
Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. So we have to ask, just from a context perspective, why is this false teaching so effective in Galatia? What you pick up sometimes as you read the New Testament is that there are certain problems that afflict certain churches, and they don't afflict other churches. You know, the tongues thing seems to be only a problem in Corinth. You know, the Judaizers are a major problem here. We understand why the converted Pharisees found an audience in Jerusalem. We even understand, like today, we understand why the prosperity preachers find an audience with poor and desperate people. We understand that. But why in Galatia is a law-centered gospel in place of a grace-centered gospel appealing? Well, we can't say definitively, but there's something in this culture that made it fertile ground for this particular heresy. It's not that the church is entirely Jewish in that region. In fact, it's, it's mostly Gentile. There were Jewish church members, but mostly Gentile. I think my, my thought is that the church was full of young and energetic believers. We've all, maybe we were all that at one time. We all know those folks. You know, they're excited. They're, they're, the emotion almost overrides any knowledge that they have at this point. And, and what do they have? They have these Judaizers who are smart intelligent, probably charismatic. And they come in and they promise a higher level of holiness, a greater degree of enlightenment. And who doesn't want that? And these young believers are easily influenced. Our flesh certainly enjoys taking credits for working for something worthwhile. What can I do to be more Christ-like? And these men are saying, follow these 12 steps and you can be wise like us. Ah, that sounds great. 12 steps, I can do that. Luther summed up their message like this, Christ's a fine master. He makes the beginning, but Moses must complete the structure. He continues, the devil's nature shows itself therein. If he cannot ruin people by wronging and persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. Self-sufficiency and salvation can be an attractive premise to our sinful hearts. And I think that's a reminder for us. It's an important reminder for the church. Young believers are susceptible to false teaching, not because they aren't intelligent, but because they haven't yet learned the word well. We don't expect you to have a master's the first day you show up. That's where the church comes in. We continually preach and teach truth. We commit to discipling and mentoring young believers. We engage in theological conversations with them. We give them an opportunity to ask questions and work through doctrine. If those lines of communication are not open and available, then we leave the sheep to the mercy of the internet preachers of the world and the pull of their own fleshly thoughts, not to mention the work of the devil. Feed the lambs, church. Protect them. It's a task that only born-again believers can accomplish through the power of the Spirit, patiently, in mercy, and in grace. We do poor service to Christ and his church when we indiscriminately lead men and women to profess faith in Christ, but then leave them vulnerable to the ravenous wolves that seek their destruction. Let me add this. Have theological conversations with your children. Encourage them to ask questions. Lead them to the truth of Scripture. Because if you won't answer that question, they will find somebody who will, and you may not like their answers. Let's move to verse 8. <clears throat> but even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. I want you to notice this, that Paul even brings himself under that curse formula. But even if we, 
If I come back and preach a different gospel, you don't listen to me because I'm the Apostle Paul. You listen to me because I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying? The issue at stake in Galatia is not the messenger. It's not the messenger. It's the message. It's not the preacher. It's the gospel. Paul didn't ask the Galatians to be loyal to him, but rather to the unchanging message of Christ, Christ alone that he had preached to them. Some critics, when you read the commentaries, chalk these verses up to an emotional outburst. So Paul, just in his frustration, is just like, ah, curse them all, you know? No doubt, he's frustrated, but there's divine power behind this curse. And don't miss the fact that he puts himself and his brethren under the same curse if they distort the gospel of Christ. And if that weren't enough, Paul invokes angels in his curse formula. Luther says, here Paul is breathing fire. His zeal is so fervent that he almost begins to curse the angels themselves. themselves. Interestingly enough, Paul will return to the subject of angels in both chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this letter. But why does Paul raise the specter of an angel preaching a counterfeit gospel? Well, perhaps the false teachers, their doctrine concerned angels or angelic revelation or knowledge. A lot of Jewish mystics of the day claimed to receive angelic revelations. But most importantly, Paul makes it clear that even if an angel were to preach a different gospel, even if Gabriel or Michael show up preaching a different gospel, then they should be accursed. The curse should fall on him as well. And the fact is that demonic activity done by fallen angels is a reality. And so again, no matter how impressive the messenger, if the gospel is altered, it's not to be heeded. In fact, it must be condemned. So if we come back and preach a different gospel, we should be accursed. If an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, they should be accursed. And that word, that he is to be accursed, is actually two words, anathema esto. That's the fate of the one who perverts the gospel. He is to be accursed. When I was in high school, anathema was one of my favorite words. I was that kind of kid. Um, So I I tried to work, anathema was one of my key words I always tried to work into all my essays because it made you sound smart, okay? Because it's the exact opposite of something you want. Remove it far, let it be anathema, move far away from me. Anathema originally referred to a thing set aside or laid by in order to be kept for divine purposes. So originally anathema meant, okay, we're gonna set this aside. It could be for blessing or it could be for cursing. In time, the negative connotation became the, what became associated with the word. That became the accepted meaning. And in Jewish circles, it, became, it, it started to be associated with, do you remember when Joshua was coming into the land? And when Jericho, for example, when he said, when you take the city, what is to be done with everything in that city? It's to be devoted to destruction. It is to be harem. It is to be under the ban. That's the word that this Greek word becomes associated with harem and the ban. And, and so think of Achan, who transgressed at Jericho, and he and his family and all the things that he'd ever touched or owned were devoted to destruction following his sin there at Jericho. So what Paul is saying is that anyone who knowingly preaches a false gospel is to be delivered over to God's wrath for final judgment. I mean, you think of that when you see so many of these false preachers out there in the media world. Do they know that they're preaching a false gospel? I think some perhaps are ignorant, but I think a great many of them know exactly what they're doing. And what Paul is saying here is that's not a good fate. If you are devoted to preaching a false gospel, you are to be accursed. In later years, the Catholic Church would employ this term to denounce heretics, to pronounce excommunication. But it's far worse than being removed from the church. 
It means nothing less than to suffer the eternal retribution and judgment of God. Paul is saying with apostolic authority, anyone who preaches a false gospel should be condemned to hell. Doesn't get much stronger than that. Paul did not pronounce this tremendous condemnation lightly, but neither did he hesitate to unleash the full fury of his righteous indignation when he was convinced that the integrity of the gospel was at stake. We have to know when to fight, and the gospel is ground zero for the fight. It's where we contend earnestly for the faith. Why does Paul repeat the condemnation in verse 9? You're getting a little repetitive there, Paul. I think the answer is pretty simple. The repetition underscores the severity of the transgression. It further admonishes the Galatians to forsake the false teaching. Furthermore, the fact that he took the time to write it twice (laughs) prevents us from chalking it up to emotional outburst. In case you didn't hear me the first time, let him be accursed. He makes sure that this is on the paper twice. It's careful, it's measured, and it's inspired. It's an inspired curse formula from an apostle to anyone who would pervert the gospel. Paul is impartial and he's deliberate. If I do it, if an angel does it, if these men do it, let them be accursed. The gospel is at stake. One other note, notice the slight difference between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8 says, if any should preach. It's kind of a hypothetical. It's if I come and preach a false gospel which Paul is saying, I don't plan on doing. If an angel comes, okay, that probably won't happen, but I'm just telling you, if anybody, all the way up to an angel comes and preaches, they should do that, then let them be accursed. Verse 9 says, if any man is preaching. Oh, he's addressing the false teachers in verse 9. He says, this condemnation is for all who would dare to pervert the gospel. Now in verse 9, now let me deal with the ones that are perverting the gospel in your midst right now. That's the ongoing crisis in Galatia involving the false teachers. Verse 8 says anyone daring to preach false doctrine should be accursed. Verse 9 says all the men currently preaching the false doctrine are accursed. So be careful who you listen to. In conclusion, we ask, why so strong, Paul? Why the emotion at the beginning of this letter? Because I think there are two things at stake with the gospel. Number one is the glory of Jesus Christ to make men's works necessary to salvation, even as a supplement to the work of Christ. Even if you say 95% Christ, 5% me, it belittles Christ's finished work on the cross. It's to imply that Christ's work was in some way unsatisfactory, some way insufficient, and that men need to add to it and to improve on it. It is in effect to declare the cross redundant. In Galatians 2.21, we'll get to that. Paul will say, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Christ died in vain. Second, the salvation of men's souls is at stake. What's the scary thing about a false gospel being preached? Well, I think the scariest thing is that people think they believe a gospel that's not salvific. I've always said when I was a youth pastor back in the day, Uh, I would say I'd rather end a conversation with a teenager where they said, I don't think I believe, because at least we know where we stand. The worst place someone could be is to think that they're born again when they're not, because people who think they're saved aren't looking for a savior. And so when you guarantee salvation through a false gospel, it gives an assurance that is not eternal. It gives an assurance that is counterfeit. So this isn't a debate over interpretation. 
This is paramount. Paul knew that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Therefore, to corrupt the gospel was to destroy the way of salvation and so to send ruin to ruin souls who might have been saved by it. Paul cared deeply for the souls of men. How much? Well, so much so that in the letter to the Romans, he said that he would willingly put himself under the curse if others, specifically Jews in that verse, would come to Christ in faith and be saved. Remember Romans 9, 3. For I could wish that I myself were anathema, same word, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Doesn't that live out Jesus' words of John 15, 13? Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Paul says, oh, I would go under the ban if Israel would believe. Paul is deadly serious about the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. And he should be. And we should be as well. Not out in the world, although there is a time and a place for that, but within the local church primarily. Not philosophical debates, but real gospel, real doctrine with the glory of Christ and the souls of men and women on the line. This, the church, is the pillar and the support of the truth. And that extends from those who have been here decades to those who have been here two weeks. This is where truth is preached. I dare say if we cared more for the glory of Christ and for the good of the souls of men, we too would not be able to bear the corruption of the gospel of grace. And we would do everything in our power to make sure it had deep roots in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. Preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, are ground zero for the follower of Christ. But if we fail to put our feet to our faith and do the difficult work of ministry, then we have neglected a sacred responsibility. And that simply cannot be among a redeemed people who are concerned with the glory of Jesus Christ and the salvation of men's souls. Preach the gospel, friends. Hold it fast. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your glorious gospel. We praise you for the salvation that you've offered only through your Son. We thank you for your perfect word who gives us the truth of that gospel. Thank you for the privilege to preach it, to teach it. Thank you for the privilege for all of us that we get to share that truth, that we can serve you as brothers and sisters as sons and daughters of God, to your glory and no one else's, Lord, in your grace and nothing else, in the faith that you've gifted us, we give you the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.